Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. This is Kirk O'Bear coming at you this Saturday morning. Hey, you know, we've been on the air for, good heavens, about almost 12 years now. Don't know if you realize that time flies when you're having fun. Well, I've been having fun. I hope you have too. But uh, every Saturday for quite some time now, we've been joining you, uh, I don't know, in your kitchen having your coffee maybe driving in your car i don't know where you are but um we are glad that you listen i also happen to know that uh many people in the detention center who are there uh waiting for their cases to be heard or maybe they're serving a brief jail sentence are listening to the show as well they pipe this uh talk show into the sheboygan county detention center I don't know if you know that, but uh, if you're listening from inside the jail, uh, hope you're doing okay. Hope you get out soon. <laughs> well, um, things are changing. And one thing that I wanted to make sure everybody was well aware of is that our court systems have been more or less on a standby status for you know, quite a few months, and we've had issues that have come up that have made it so in-person appearances uh, are not deemed safe. But uh, starting on March 1st, we're going to be resuming uh, in-person jury trials. So coming right up here in a couple weeks, we're going to be trying to get things somewhat back to normal. You know, there was a brief period of time during the summer when there were some trials, but then the pandemic uh had another increase in positivity that occurred and it was deemed just not safe and then there were every time there was a potential opportunity to resume those trials at least here in Sheboygan uh, there had been more positive cases amongst people that actually work in the courthouse and one of the parameters for if uh, it was going to be safe to resume is if there had not been any positive cases for a certain period of time and if there was one then there was a waiting period that had to occur so hopefully um things are well enough under control for things to resume now one other thing that just happened recently is that people that are in the public defender's office or people that accept public defender cases are going to get bumped up uh, on the list of people that can receive the vaccine and we talked about this on a previous show about why uh, that's probably an important thing. And and uh, you'll also recall recently there has been a debate about whether people who are incarcerated should uh, be at a higher priority because of the relatively unsafe circumstances that, by definition, uh, detention centers, jails, and prisons uh, require people to be in close proximity to each other. It's kind of the nature of the beast when you look at it that way. And we have seen, of course, uh, a very large number of cases throughout the state uh, in confinement settings, including, I think, over 25 deaths that have occurred in jails or prisons. So, you know, the issue there is that from a public health perspective has been one of uh, you know, you've heard uh, the legislator who's opposed to the idea of giving people the vaccine in a, in a higher priority, of course, for people that are in a confinement setting. Um, 
and whether or not that is, I don't know, fair to those that uh, have not committed a crime is the way it's been worded, uh, so to speak. Um, but, you know, the issue there is that it affects more than just that person who, who may have committed, you know, a violent crime. I don't know. It could have been a nonviolent crime. I don't know why we're, we're parsing those things out. But what I can say is that it affects more than just that person. Of course, there are people that work within that setting that uh, have done nothing wrong or not serving a sentence and so on. And, you know, one of those factors are people that do defense work. Now, got a slight beef with this because um, the people that are being moved to the top of the list are just those that are in the public defender's office or accept public defender appointments. So other people like myself uh, who are private attorneys that do defense work on just as much of a level as public defenders uh, are in and out of the jails. Uh, I travel all over the state and do cases in different counties. I'm probably more at risk of contracting COVID than, than most people because of that type of interaction that I have. Yet I, I myself am not going to be uh, higher on the list because I'm not with the public defender's office. Interestingly, um, judges and prosecutors are not going to be placed higher on the list, uh, even though they have a similar amount of contact with these types of things. Now, they don't go in the jail quite as much, but um, you know, we've already looked at first responders, people over a certain age, etc., that uh, should be at a higher priority. This thing, hopefully, you know, the vaccines will roll out quick enough, as promised by President Biden, that this doesn't become too much of an issue. But there is the potential for kind of a, a gap here in those that are receiving it and those that aren't, and. Uh, hopefully this doesn't create too much of a problem. Now, interestingly, uh, we'll have these trials starting and there'll be a mix of people that show up for jury duty. Some have been, some have received the vaccine, some have not. That's just the nature of what happens. And we'll have to see what happens. Now, this is a good thing. It's a good thing that we are resuming jury trials because it has made the criminal justice system just basically stop still in its tracks and yes there have been cases resolved and yes there have been cases where um you know a plea can be entered or an agreement is reached but essentially it's it's become something where the the ability to actually try a controversy ironically the cases that should be tried the quickest because if someone is uh, professing their innocence or putting the state to their burden of proof which is something that everyone has the right to do in every single case. Um, we're not going to, we haven't been able to see that come to fruition uh, in its logical sense. So there will be precautions. If you get uh, selected for jury duty, you're going to see the courtrooms laid out in a completely different way. Um, people are kind of spread out all over the place. Everybody wears masks, of course. There's plexiglass all over the place. And, uh, you know, people are kind of, shouting at each other from different parts of the courtroom. Uh, some of the courtrooms, by the way, in Sheboygan anyway, are not large enough to accommodate uh, this particular uh, procedure that we're doing. So there are additional modifications being made. So if you do show up for jury duty, make sure that you, um, you know, you understand what's going on. Everybody still wants to be safe. We want to make sure that everybody is uh, comfortable 
and that we can resume this process. And, and some might say, you know, let's just wait till the pandemic's fully over. You know, that's not a logical thing to do because it, who knows how long that's going to take. And it's already been many, many, many months with this justice process just not being able to proceed. And I'm just talking about the criminal cases. Um, there are civil cases out there that probably need jury trials and, and need those types of in-person appearances uh, that are also waiting. And I, we all understand that perhaps those don't have the greatest priority simply because they don't tend to involve somebody who's in custody. And uh, when you're waiting in custody to be um, tried uh, to a jury of your peers, I'm sure it's... <laughs> It can be very, very, very taxing. I, I have several clients that have gone through what seems like an indefinite waiting period in order for these cases to be tried um, in the manner in which we, we would hope that they would be. Now, um, it, it raises another interesting question in my mind, because we have tried to make this justice system continue working uh, in a way without those trials happening and when you do that um, you're kind of taking away the main point of the justice system and what I've noticed is that sometimes you have this balancing act that you have to go through is it going to be uh, okay to to not have the ability to take a case to trial and still negotiate an outcome sure there are those cases where somebody says look I just want to get this over with. I never wanted a trial to begin with. I never wanted the, the opportunity to go to trial to begin with. And sure, yeah, you can just go in and you know ask for mercy or whatever it is that you want to do. And, um, you know, roll the dice and see what happens. But when you don't have that ability to exercise that very important right, even in the abstract is what I'm saying, you know, it has a different way of impacting how cases are resolved. So we'll talk more about this and many other things when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. Um, I want to share with you a story uh, about a recent case that our firm had. And it just highlights how things can go terribly wrong when uh, people aren't careful <laughs> to say, to put it lightly, um, this case was an absolute travesty. But what happened was, uh, this is a guy in Milwaukee, and uh, what he did wrong, he certainly was guilty of something. He had some drugs on him uh, when he went to a party, and at this party, people were doing drugs, okay? That's true. It's all true. Um, he ended up uh, leaving the party. Uh, his girlfriend stayed, and he gets a call the next morning that... Um, she died of an overdose and he is uh horrified but the police are trying to figure out what happened and it turns out that um when they go to talk to him they you know they discover that he had has some drugs that he had with him at the party he admits to all this and he has some marijuana and some cocaine so at the time of his arrest they tested the cocaine and it came back uh with a field test and I want to emphasize this, a field test, something that the police do like right on the spot. They have a little um, pouch that they can put 
a small sample of the substance in and then see if it generates a chemical reaction and it's just kind of a quick test that you can do right there on the spot and it came back uh you know presumptively indicative of fentanyl now if you don't know what fentanyl is it's a very very dangerous uh opiate it's a synthetic opiate that is manufactured mostly to you know sedate elephants and things like that um it, it also has legitimate pharmaceutical pharmaceutical uses um in the form of a patch uh things like that that for pain management but it's very very carefully administered but in its uh in its in its raw form it kills people it just does i mean it's it's too powerful to administer you know in any way on the street or mixed in with other drugs and it's just a terrible terrible thing so the case ends up progressing as most do the guy ends up, ends up getting taken into custody and there's this whole debate about what to do and uh, he has a, a lawyer and uh, interesting thing about this it was a an experienced lawyer i'm not going to name names here but it was somebody who had been practicing for quite some time so this isn't look like a this doesn't look like a rookie error and in the process of you know negotiations as to what happens the lawyer tells the client that he's running the risk of getting charged with a, a len bias homicide and if you don't know what that is a len bias homicide we, we call it that after len bias the basketball player that died of a cocaine overdose and it was after that um incident many years ago when many state laws were enacted to deal with people that share or distribute drugs to others and then the person who received the drugs and took them died um, as a form of reckless homicide so it tends to carry very stiff penalties it is a of course a a form of homicide so um, it naturally calls for extended periods of incarceration if someone is found guilty of such a thing so anyway the lawyer is telling the client that hey you know you better just take the rap on this and plead guilty to everything and throw yourself on your sword and beg for mercy so client not knowing what else to do um says okay i guess that's my best bet and this whole issue of the girlfriend overdosing becomes kind of a central feature of this person's sentencing hearing and he ends up getting not what normally someone would normally get for that kind of charge which would be you know a month or two or three in jail uh, or some probation or something like that but you know he goes to prison he gets sentenced to in this case it was two years prison but because they it wasn't actually a homicide charge on the table um now i want to back up and tell you where things went terribly wrong here the cocaine that had tested positive of for containing fentanyl was later tested by the state crime laboratory they detected no fentanyl whatsoever in the uh in the cocaine the autopsy that was done on the lady that died showed that she died of a heroin overdose uh, 
This client had no heroin, didn't give anybody any heroin. It was marijuana and cocaine that he had. This was all something that was basically um, found out a little too late, and uh, actually the timing of it is, is very suspicious. We were able to determine, and, and just so you know, we, we our firm got hired after all of these other things happened, and our client is sitting in prison as a result of this. Well, we did an investigation, went and looked back, found out that it would have been impossible for him to have, um, you know, been responsible for the death, and that this whole notion that he'd, he'd better plead guilty, otherwise suffer the wrath of... Um, a Len Bias homicide charge was pure fiction. And we found communication from the DA's office to this defense lawyer that said, just so you know, we are not at all intending on proceeding with any homicide charges. So don't worry about that. The lawyer never told the client that this was the case. And when this fellow ended up you know, entering his plea, he was under the impression that he had no other choice. Now, if you watch any of these crime TV shows or law shows, you probably understand that the process of trying to overturn a conviction based on something like this is a very, very difficult task. Essentially, what you have to prove is that it was something that infected the process so profoundly that no one can say that it was a just result. And fortunately, we had that ammunition in this case. We're able to not only demonstrate that the, you know, the reasons for entering the plea were tainted by this um, advice that was given by, you know, again, a very experienced lawyer. It, it turned into what everyone had to agree was a coercive set of circumstances. And again, based on not doing uh, the job correctly. So think about this. The judge in the courtroom is uh, assuming that everyone's doing their job the right way. I mean, how else would a judge, you know, assume anything? Uh, people are coming to him saying, this is the situation. This is why we're doing it. This is what we want you to do. And the judge does what the judge thinks should happen. So what we had to do was first talk about all of this with the prosecutor. And one of the things they really do not like to do is, uh, you know, reopen a case based on something that a defense lawyer did. And think about why that's the case. I mean, there's a good reason for that. Because, you know, they want to insulate the system from a lawyer potentially sabotaging the situation. I mean, what, how would it be if uh, every time someone entered a plea, the lawyer could say something that's totally wrong, and then later that, that would, like, always result in a conviction being reversed, you know? So they're usually on guard about those types of antics, and there's usually quite a bit of resistance. So, you know, following the paper trail, including the things that were said in court, the communications that were made, the representations that were given, and again, transcripts were very important in this case, we were able to convince the prosecutor to agree with us that this was uh, not only ineffective assistance of counsel, but it was 
purely, you know, justice gone wrong, and it, it was not the right result. And this should have been treated as a routine possession case. So the, the prosecution joins in the defense in a motion to reopen and vacate the conviction for the cocaine charge and stipulated in front of the court that the correct sentence should be time served and that the defendant should be released immediately from prison. There was a hearing on that uh, motion and the judge agreed and our client was uh, set free. He's home now um, after having gone through that trauma and we're still continuing to assist him in adjusting to uh, life after that horrific experience. But just a real life lesson in how things can go terribly wrong if you're not diligent and careful when you're in the justice process. We're going to take a break and be right back after these messages. Welcome back. There was a kind of a surprising development in the law that occurred in this past week, and it didn't happen here in Wisconsin. It happened in Tennessee. And the general subject matter of what I'm about to talk about is a concept that I've talked about before on the show, probably a long time ago. But uh, it's this concept of what we call jury nullification. And if you're ever on a jury, you will never hear those words spoken in court. Uh, in Wisconsin, there's a very long line of cases that prohibits either side from arguing that there should be a verdict that's inconsistent with the facts of the case. So let me put that another way. Let's say there's evidence of uh, guilt, and let's say the jury believes that the person did, in fact, commit the crime that the person's charged with, and they have to vote basically on elements of an offense. So I'll give you a simple example of, let's just say, drunk driving. Element number one, the first thing they have to prove is the person was either driving or operating a motor vehicle on a highway. So let's say the jury says, yeah, that's we find that he did that. He or she did that. Second element is that while doing that thing, number one, number two is that the person did so at the time while under the influence of an intoxicant. And let's say the jury says, yep, that's uh, that, that happened as well as a factual matter. They're, because of the way that juries work in secret, uh, and nobody monitors deliberations, nobody is there to make sure they talk about the right things and don't talk about the wrong things and don't jump to conclusions they shouldn't. It's a free-form discussion, and the jury comes to whatever verdict they come to, and it cannot be challenged by either side. So in that sense, a jury could come back with a not guilty verdict, even if everyone on the jury panel believes that as a factual matter, the person is guilty. That's just true. You know, the jury can do that. There's, there's no way of stopping that. So when in the abstract, we call that jury nullification. A jury has the power to basically nullify what would otherwise be a, a verdict consistent with the facts. And by the way, this can go both ways. Um, we can have a jury where the evidence clearly points to innocence, but for whatever reason, because the jury doesn't like the defendant or whatever, you know, they can just find the person guilty. 
inconsistent with factual conclusions that they draw. And again, we can't examine how they reach conclusions, what they talked about, or the reasons why they believe certain things happened or not. So it's always been sort of a, a long tradition in our you know, justice system in this country that we give juries kind of the ultimate power and we don't mess with that. You know, they do what they do. We don't question how we, they get to that result and then they give the result by announcing the verdict. Now, it's fairly common. I've done this before where afterwards you can talk to the jurors and find out what the rationale was behind a verdict or what sorts of things they talked about. And, and they certainly don't have to tell you. Uh, they are allowed to say, nope, I'm not going to tell you. And that's fine. You just have to leave it where it is. But sometimes jurors are willing to talk about that. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get feedback as to what was important to the jury during their discussions and what sort of things they focused on, what they believed or didn't believe and, and so on. Well, in Tennessee, they have actually enacted, um, as part of their standardized jury instructions, and a little footnote here, um, jury instructions are formulated by typically um, a jury instruction committee. Here in Wisconsin, we have, it's a group of judges, uh, prosecutors, defense lawyers, law professors, uh, people knowledgeable in the law that um, come to an agreement on what the fairest way to explain things to the jury are, and they result in jury instructions that are printed, pre-printed. And when a judge is conducting a trial, if you've ever been in one, you'll note that the judge is usually reading something, uh, at, you know, as the trial progresses. And that's, those are typically these jury instructions. So every state has them. They're, they're in the federal system as well, and they tend to embody you know, the uh, officially sanctioned way of explaining things. Now, you might wonder why do they take so much care to agree upon how it should be done, you know, outside the context of why, why isn't the judge allowed to just make it up? After all, the judge is supposed to know this stuff, right? Well, it's because how things are worded can have a tremendous impact, or at least both sides believe that they have a tremendous impact on how the jury can be influenced. And you can see it sometimes in trials. A judge might actually emphasize through tone of voice or delivery that, you know, a particular section is more important than others. You know, it's it's very, very touchy. And lawyers, of course, worry about this all the time. Like, oh, judge, you're, you're saying that in such a way that you're kind of giving a wink and a nod to the jury. Gosh, that's unfair. Well, you know, you can't control everything in that aspect. But... These jury instructions do uh, make an effort to keep it as fair as possible. So the wording is very, very, very carefully worked out well in advance. And when a judge gives these standardized jury instructions, you know, it's deemed that there's a presumption of, um, you know, appropriateness to them. So back to Tennessee, what's going on there? They have incorporated the process of advising the jury that they are allowed to render a verdict that's inconsistent with the facts if they so choose, kind of emphasizing that they have that power. It's a power the jury already always has. But the thing that's very unusual about this is that you know, common practice in courts all over the country has been to shy away from that subject. 
prosecutors in particular like to prevent the defense from doing anything or saying anything that would highlight the fact that the jury can do this. Now, of course, the way it usually goes is they say, uh, you can't use the words jury nullification when you're talking to the jury. Well, no one would ever do that anyway, because I'm not sure that it, that phrase means anything to anyone, unless you're well-versed in the law and you know what what it is that you're talking about. So, But the, the fascinating thing here is that this has always been a subject that is kind of a, a legal fiction in the sense that we all pretend that it's something that you can't do um, yet. It's fully acknowledged that a jury can and has, <laughs> have in the past, of course, done things that are completely within their power to do. So the odd thing, the unusual thing, the, the departure of, um, you know, from standard practice that Tennessee is undertaking here is they actually have incorporated, you know, a phrase in the jury instruction that talks about the burden of proof and how they find facts and so on. And it says specifically, you may find from uh, in your deliberations that the prosecution has met every element of the offense charged to a level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You are free, however, to render any verdict that you feel is just for whatever reason you believe. And then it talks about your conscience. And this is where, you know, that's really what this whole idea is all about. And it highlights the fact that if in good conscience you do not feel that a guilty verdict is just, you are free to find the defendant not guilty. Wow. I mean, that is true, but something that forever we've, uh, you know, not been able to talk about, you know, just steer away from. It. Now, why is that? Why, why do we have this uh, aversion telling the jury how much power how much unrestrained power they have well i'll tell you why from my perspective of course i'm a defense lawyer so i've got a bit of a you know slant on this i admit but it's because in the administration of justice prosecutors tend to uh, get whatever they want when it comes to changing the law or having things go in a way that are is in their favor and it's been perceived over the years that what what the prosecutors would like to do is tell the jury that hey if you believe this thing happened, you have to find this person guilty. You absolutely must. It's like a direction. You you are required to find the person guilty. And jurors will deliberate and say, well, gee, it doesn't seem right. I mean, they, you know, I question whether this case should have ever been brought to trial. This seems like a bunch of nonsense, but we're being ordered to find the person guilty. Yes, and that's how prosecutors would like it to be. Because it makes their job easier. Then they don't have to, you know, there's less guesswork. They can basically, you know, force this issue to happen. So uh, there are reasons why it's developed that way. And we'll talk more about that when we come back from the break, right after these messages. All right. So before the break, I was getting into a somewhat admittedly cynical view of why prosecutors want things certain ways. And specifically in the context of this jury nullification issue, which, you know, the history of why it's very clear that a jury has this power goes back to actually a case that um, in pre, uh, you know, prior to our nation forming itself as a nation, 
when we were still in the colonial era, there had been a series of cases um, against colonists uh, prosecuted by the English crown where um, mostly people that were, you know, charged with political dissent or things like that uh, were being directed to render certain verdicts. In fact, there was a case where um, the judge believed that a particular defendant was guilty. And when the jury came back with a not guilty verdict, he ordered the jury to go back and continue deliberating until they got the right verdict. Um, and, and then when they came back again and said, we still find the defendant not guilty, the judge says, no, you're going to go back and keep on deliberating. And in fact, you're going to be held in custody <laughs> until you find the defendant guilty. Well, okay, this, this sort of set the precedent for why when we did uh, formulate our constitution and our sense of due process and, and so on that jurors uh, are invited as members of the public, the jury of peers that you hear talked about all the time, um, to come in and render that verdict. Um, a judge or a prosecutor cannot order them to do any particular thing. Well, some things, yes, they, they can't. Now, there's rules that they have to follow you know, procedurally, like they can't leak information about the deliberations. They can't do independent research. They can't, you know, do something that constitutes misconduct. But the decision-making part of it is uh, very, very strongly protected in the sense that uh, what should have happened in that old case that serves as an example where the judge said, keep deliberating until you find the defendant guilty, um, is wrong. And that's absolutely not the way that we do things. So uh, on that basis, uh, we know that a jury does have the ability to render any verdict they want for any reason they want. It's just that over the years, the defense has been prohibited from saying so. You know, you can't just say, hey, you may think think Joe Schmo's guilty, but just find him not guilty for some other reason. You know, just it ain't right. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. Um, so, again, why do why do prosecutors care about this so much? Well, uh, the argument that we hear a lot, and this is not just in relation to this issue, but in other issues that come up as it relates to the prosecution having more leeway to do things to kind of try to control the outcome. What we always hear is this fear that prosecutors uh, put forth in their arguments that it's already unfair that a defendant uh, bears no burden of production and no burden of proof in a trial. So the argument is always that the scales are tipped to begin with. And, well, it's supposed to be that way, by the way, because that's how people are protected from arbitrary results and from potentially wrongful convictions is because the state, the prosecution, always has the highest burden of proof that exists in the law, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, it's supposed to be that way. I mean, you can't tinker with that. That is just true, okay? But we hear prosecutors all the time that say, hey, judge, it's already unfair for us, so we want to level the playing field 
and we want you know a b and c to occur and surprisingly you know that tends to unfortunately bear some weight when it comes to adjustments in the law adjustments in how instructions are read and so forth so you should see if you could examine the whole issue of jury nullification as it relates to jury instructions in wisconsin we we do not have an instruction that actually discusses that issue at all um, and the burden of proof instruction it, it simply states that you you know the jury is instructed to uh, you know analyze the evidence and if they believe that the defendant is guilty they should render a guilty verdict if they have doubt which rises to the level of a reasonable doubt any reasonable doubt then they must find the defendant not guilty so you know that's just a way of stating that um you know look at everything and if it you have to look at it from the perspective of has the prosecution met that burden um if we had a system where there was not such a burden it would come down to things like you know a popularity contest or who's the craftier lawyer or who well, you know, what kind of what kind of clothes did the defendant wear that day? You know, there's all kinds of things that, um, you know, we hope to avoid the jury making, you know, an arbitrary decision about. So it's the fact that, you know, there's a fear that arbitrariness could infect this process that uh, prosecutors will say, judge, you know, we do not want the defense to even approach anything that suggests the jury can find somebody not guilty if they believe as a matter of fact that these things have been proven. Um, and, you know, they tend to be able to make those arguments. In fact, you know, I think it's kind of a, an odd thing, though, when we hear, I hear prosecutors in closing argument make these arguments that are, you know, almost insulting to the jury, where they're like, did we prove this? Yes, we did. Here's how. Now you have to find him guilty of that element. And did we prove this? Yes, we did. Here's how. And they kind of are just like telling the jury what they have to do. And talk about a formula for the jury, like perhaps uh, engaging in jury nullification. That might be precisely the type of situation where that occurs. Um, but we have these instructions that kind of, you know, they, they come across sounding like uh, the jury is required to render a verdict. So, um, going back to what I was talking about before, where I've, I've talked to jurors after a trial and those that are willing to talk, you know, it's completely voluntary, have shared their views on how things went. And, and a lot of times when I win a trial, I'll talk to the jurors and they'll say, you know, it just seemed like the prosecutor was overreaching was making more of the evidence than it really was drawing a lot of inferences and arguments from things that were you know not necessarily as apparent as the prosecutor would have you believe and that's exactly why that burden of proof is there because when you have a case and this happens a lot you know where the prosecution will construct a series of circumstantial facts and put them in front of the jury and then they want them to take this additional like logical leap and say well if this happened and this happened and this happened then naturally the next thing happened and, and i hear this all the time if it walks like a duck 
if it talks like a duck, it must be a duck, right? Um, okay, but I'm very interested to see what happens in Tennessee now that this has become, you know, the official language that they tell the jury that in spite of everything that happens, if in good conscience you want to find somebody not guilty, you can. That's amazing. I mean, that's, it's, it's true. It's been true all along. It's true here, not, not just in Tennessee. But, you know, somehow, in some way, they have managed to incorporate this. Uh, you know, it's, it's just basically an accurate way of describing the jury's function. Now, it has ramifications beyond just those simple words, because I can tell you, again, having talked to jurors after trial, oftentimes they feel as though their role is very limited, that they're just there to do what the judge says and do what the prosecutor says, and oftentimes they feel like they're being, you know, directed to do something, and sometimes they're like, why were we even here, you know? We were told we have to find him guilty, so we did. And that's the impression they get. So I think this Tennessee instruction acknowledges the fact that jurors, just, you know, they're not familiar with the process generally. You don't have people that are intimately familiar with the justice system. I mean, we don't want somebody who has that much familiarity with the justice system to come in and render a verdict. That's why um, somebody would be objective and unbiased when they come in. But I can tell you from personal experience, there are many times where a jury just, they're not quite sure that they're doing the right thing and they're, they're trying in good conscience to do what they believe they're supposed to do. And sometimes they feel that they're limited. So we'll see where this goes. I'll give you an update to see how the, this actually pans out because this is a brand new development. But hope you've enjoyed the show. That's all we have for this week. You can tune in next week. If you're so inclined at eight o'clock right here on 1330 and 101.5, this has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. This is Kirk O'Bear signing off. Have a great weekend.